0: Okay, the fifth aliyah of Parshish Vayishlach is incredibly intense and incredibly relevant, at least theoretically, to what Qal Yisrael is going through right now. And we'll try to, to adjust this the best we can and hope that we can gain some perspective. There's many, many things that happen here and many themes that are highly relevant. So, first, uh, the parsha the Elieh begins, (laughs) So, Leia's daughter, Dina, goes out. And that language that she goes out, so Chazal understand negatively, as if she was a little bit uh, too open. Rashi says here, And there are many surprising statements in Chazal that blame her consequences here on various decisions of her parents. Just to note quickly, so one is we saw in the previous Aliyah, that, or an earlier Aliyah, that Yaakov is held responsible for what happened to her because he hid her away from Esav. And that's a very hard idea to understand, that apparently she potentially could have turned Esau around if she had married him, and Yaakov was afraid of that, that Esau would want to marry her, so therefore he hid her away, and she ends up falling into this situation, so that's very difficult to understand, because... Yaakov presumably made the only decision any responsible father could have made. Clearly, this is not a shidduch that would have been good for her, or would have been safe for her. And we don't advise a father that who has a daughter to marry. You should try to find the worst possible guy because she can have the biggest effect on him, and that's the whole purpose of things. And the better she is, the more you should find the worst possible guy. That's not the kind of etz that we give people. So it's clear that Yaakov did the only responsible step here. And why there should be any kind of criticism of him is a very difficult topic, and there are many suggestions, but one that's kind of a theme for a lot in this Aliyah, and a lot that has to do with the war themes that show up here, and also in the beginning of the Parsha, is the idea that both things can be true at once. That Yaakov could be correct in his decision. Maybe there was indeed no other way to understand that situation, but that doesn't absolve him of the responsibility to regret the consequences, not regret in the sense of having done something different, but regret in the sense of having compassion for what was lost. And that perhaps is a crucial message, and it's one that to also frame this, Aliyah, a little bit, Yaakov seems to have understood in the beginning of the Parsha, because in the beginning of the Parsha we're told Yaakov and that Yaakov was preparing for war with Esav, and he was afraid of getting killed, V'ira, and also anguished about something else, and Rashi says, afraid that he would have to kill others. And some raise the question that if he did have to kill others, so then presumably it would have been justified in the sense of that person being a Rodev, and why should he feel bad about that? So we understand the answer to the question, really, even though there is somewhat of a discussion in this farm, that even if he would be totally justified in whatever lethal action he would have to take, that wouldn't absolve him from having to feel the sense of loss, both to him personally and his neshama, and of course to the person he would have to kill and to those who surround him so that idea was apparently understood by him there but maybe in the sense of feeling the harder to picture but still relevant loss to esab of the potential that he could have been saved spiritually and uh, not recognize that there was a cost to that so that's how some of the bali Muslim understand that that's the statement here and it's again a theme that's gonna be very relevant to a lot of the issues here uh, another parent who gets held responsible is that Rashi here quotes another reference to a her parent here that talking about this attribute of Dina being Yatsanis, it connects this to her mother, Shinamarva Tetsa Leah Le Leah That that is a reference to Leah's approaching Yaakov which led to the birth of Yisachar. So that's also hard to understand because their lay was acting completely appropriately in order to further the development of the Yashiv So why should that be a source of any kind of problem with her child? And the Yashiv Karen Goldwich of had a psicha about this, which also brings out a different very important theme, that when there is a need to engage in a midah that may have negative aspects to it, but even if it's completely justified and for a good reason and with good motivation, but very often the children don't recognize that that's what's going on. So when the children see their parents acting a certain way, even if there's a very good reason for it, but that's not necessarily what the children pick up, and they imitate that midah not necessarily with the same kind of justification. And that's also a crucial message, It's relevant if a a parent feels they have to act with anger or with cynicism or uh, with a certain negativity and there may be justification for it but that's not necessarily what comes across to the child and they just learn to copy that mida and that could have its own negative consequences and that's an equally important lesson that is derived from the other parental blame that we see associated with this very difficult episode so, here, we see that So, he, on the, what seems to be a Pasha chat here, is he essentially raped her. And that attack, which, of course, also we're finding now relevant to what's been happening to Kali Yisrael over these past weeks, and to the horror associated with that, and that makes the story that emerges from here all the more relevant. And uh, no one should think, sometimes there's, uh, there's some misunderstanding about that crime, that the uh, Torah doesn't seem to think it's so serious because there's a monetary fine associated with it, so that has its own explanation to it, but one should not think that there is any less than a tremendously serious crime associated with this, but just to make that very direct, and we'll explain the full context in a few minutes, but the Rambam identifies this as an act of gazel to the victim, and therefore subsumed, at least in the parsha of that Avera, and fully liable for all of the consequences that emerge from that, as we will see, in a few moments. So this was reported back to Yaakov that this happened uh, in between. So Shechem decides he wants to marry her. Uh, Some suggest that there's actually somewhat of a surprising reflection here on Shechem that apparently he was able to appreciate her spiritual qualities also, because the fact that even after that, he was still interested in marrying her. So that represents a full appreciation for other aspects of her as well. But nonetheless, so he had this whole design on her. And when this was heard by Yaakov, so Yaakov was silent. He heard about this, and he was quiet. So why he was quiet is something that Mepharshim struggle with. Uh, Rav Schwab suggests that here he understood that some action was going to have to be taken. And he was apparently leaving this to his sons to deal with it but the reason he himself was quiet is because a act of vengeance such as that would require a completely noble and focused mo- motive without any ulterior motivations any shema. and Yaakov himself was personally embarrassed by this because all of everything he did for Shem, that this is how they should treat him so therefore there was the possibility that his reaction could also draw from his own personal embarrassment rather than simply vengeance on behalf of what happened to his daughter, so therefore he left it to his sons to deal with. So their reaction is certainly not silent, very far from it. And they have a comment here, which is important to try to understand. So they're extremely upset, and they say, Ki v'chein lo So this is essentially a travesty. This is terrible. What's happened here is disgraceful. V'chein lo it's not done. So it sounds like somewhat of a, of a tonal shift, because it sounds like basically saying this is a travesty, this is a travesty, this is terrible. And it's not Dominic. It's not done. So uh, why does it shift so much in tone? So there's a fascinating comment in the Vesalevi, which has itself a lot of implications. So this aliyah has just a tremendous amount in it. So the Beis comment draws on a Gemara and of Kam on the And just to give some context, uh, so there's a lot really to say about this comment, but if uh, I used to wonder as a kid, so you, you sometimes see these scenarios in comedies where somebody is... Of a distinguished person, uh, he's the, the boss, or the mayor, or the president, or the king, whatever he is, and he's incognito. And because people don't recognize how distinguished he is, they treat him in a disrespectful way. So, I used to plan in advance, because who knows? Maybe someday I'll be distinguished, and somebody will be mevazah me, not knowing how incredibly chashev I am. So, how how should you respond to such a? Treatment. So on the one hand, you know your instinct is you want to be mochel, you want to be a nice guy, you don't want to stand on your honor. But on the other hand, it's a little bit not nice to be mochel too readily because essentially what you're saying then is that it's okay to treat people disrespectfully, but just not me, you didn't know it was me, okay, but other people, you want to treat them disrespectfully. If you're mochel too easily, that's essentially what you're saying. So... To speak to that story, I remember hearing a Gadolim story, one of the stories which probably said about many Gadolim, but we'll say that it's the Beis levi because it'll work out. We'll and on. It could have been. So for this purpose, let's say the Beis Alevi was on a train and he was treated disrespectfully by somebody who just thought he was, I'm a poor person on a train, didn't recognize who he was. And then afterwards, somebody pointed out to him, don't you recognize that's the Beis Alevi, shemana uh, <laughs> his great-grandson's going to be the rub, the whole thing, it's, uh, big deal. So the person feels bad about this, and he's all embarrassed, and he goes over to the Beis Alevi, and he says, I'm so sorry, could you be me?" And the Beis Alevi responded, I can't be mochumi. can't be you because I'm not the victim. If you had known it was me, you never would have treated me that way. So it's not to be mocha. You have to go find a, a Sound poor person and ask him for mechila because that's the person you intended to disparage. So you have to ask mechila from him. So that point would be Lushitaso then if he's the person in the story because in commenting on this Pasuk, why is there this shift in tone? Oh, it's a travesty and it's not done. Seems to be such a different kind of focus. So he pointed to the Gemara, Bavakama, where the Gemara tells the story. Somebody wants to go on vacation, let's say, and he has a bag of gold coins, and he's afraid that something something will happen to them, so he goes to the lady next door, and he says, I want you to watch my bag of coins, but he doesn't really trust her 100% either, so he doesn't want her to know how valuable it is, so if he doesn't tell her that they're gold coins, he says it's a bag of silver coins, a little bit less valuable. So the Gemara says that if it turns out something happens to it, it gets stolen, and she was negligent in a way that she should be liable because she expected she accepted responsibility. So she's chayev, but only for the price of silver coins because that's what she accepted. So even though the damage was greater than that, but she didn't accept protection for gold coins. She only accepted protection for the silver coins. So she's only liable on that level. So that's if that happens on her watch. But if she was actually the one who was mazikit herself, she took the liberty of destroying the coins herself, so then she's liable for the whole thing. So why not? She has the same excuse, I didn't realize how bad it was, I didn't know that they were gold coins, I should only be liable for what I knew I was doing. So the Gemara essentially answers that the whole thing was illegitimate, she didn't have a right to be mazikit coins at all. So once you're doing that, so then it's not an excuse to say I didn't know how bad it was. If you're engaging in illegitimate behavior, so then you're responsible for the whole impact of that, regardless of how much you knew you were engaging in. And the only exemption is when it's not because she was acting legitimately, it was all a consequence of the shmira she accepted, so then (coughs) okay, it's limited to the shmira she accepted. But if she was acting this way illegitimately, so then she's liable for the whole thing. So essentially that's the point here. He says that when somebody is acting and it happens to be there's an extra factor here. So, okay, you didn't know about the extra factor, so then you would be off the hook. So if you were treating a person the way that a normal person should be treated, and you didn't recognize that they deserve extra treatment, okay, so then you didn't know about that. Then it's not your fault. But if you're acting in a way that nobody deserves to be treated, so then it's not an excuse to realize, to say, oh, I didn't realize that they were extra distinguished and they deserve even better treatment. Because if this is the way nobody should be treated, then you're liable for the whole impact of everything that came along with that. So essentially, it is kind of meduyuk here in the story that there's two levels of offense here. So on the one hand, they're emphasizing, that this is a terrible offense against such a prominent person who they owed so much to, against the daughter of Yaakov. That was incredibly disgraceful. So to that, maybe they'll respond, oh, we didn't know. We didn't know she was Yaakov's daughter. So you can't blame us for that. So to that, the response is, it doesn't matter whether you knew that or not because this kind of treatment shouldn't be done to anyone. So if you're acting in a way that would be unacceptable no matter who it is you're dealing with, so then it's not an excuse to say, oh, I didn't realize how bad it was. And that's a big yesod in terms of, first of all, how we treat people, that everybody deserves basic covet, and if you fail on that level, then it's not going to help you that if you happen to be dealing with somebody who deserves even more covet, that you didn't recognize who they were because you have to have that basic cover for everyone. I think I mentioned when I was telling the stories about my father on his yard site that he had this Han Hugo in the days before caller ID, and when he answered the phone, if he didn't have time to talk, he'd say right away, can I call you back before finding out who it was? Because he didn't want the person to think, oh, if I was Hushiv, you'd have time for me, but you just don't think I'm Hushiv. So he wanted them to know that I don't know who was on the phone, but whoever it is, I'm going to have to call you back later because there are certain things that would be offensive to anybody, and they only get an extra level because of somebody's personal covet, but if there's a certain basic treatment that's relevant to everybody, so then you're going to be liable for the whole thing. The base of extrapolates here also, it's a lot of other things, it's actually a pretty long piece. After he says that, forth, he then goes on to say a lot more. And he says this is a klal in general. So he says, so for example, if somebody is mazalzal on this and then it turns out that what he does, actually, it turns out it was Nisr Daraisa he was violating. So then he is liable for violating the Yisr Daraisa. He can't say, well, I didn't know it Daraisa, because he knew he was violating the Rabbanan, And therefore, everything comes along with that, because the whole homer of the Avera comes along with whatever... Level he was aware of because he was acting legitimately. going to end, so he goes on to expand on this in many points. Each detail, it's interesting, really, is its own discussion because one could say, for example, when dealing with these s'urim drabanan that are uh, siags, that's kind of the whole point that you are expected to take on a level of. Sensitivity to the situation, and that's why we make the safeguard over here. So then, if you end up violating the safeguard and violating the actual istir darisa, so you for sure you should be responsible for that because that was the whole point. Then you are Mizazo in the safeguard. But whether this is a by everything is an interesting discussion, and what might be particularly relevant also to what comes next. There's a long discussion about this in a safer Uruvi issue, a contemporary safer. Uh, my uh, Schwartz I believe his name is he has uh, a lot of fascinating things to say and a lot of different things big thick svarim on all the and the mo'adim and he has a uh, lengthy discussion about this and about other things Nalia will come back to in a second and he tainas that this base of levi is not pashup shat in the gemara and it's not what it sounds like is the real reasoning behind the gemara and it doesn't sound like this is really a klal in the so he discusses the whole application and What's relevant for us is that he suggests that essentially this isn't necessarily a basic monetary rule, but it could be true on a moral level, and it could have other implications. So that may be especially relevant to us as we try to understand what happens next. So that whole analysis that whether or not this is true on a technical chosha level, that you actually become liable on a higher level for things you didn't know about just because there was some illegitimacy in what you're doing, But if it's true on any level, if it's true on a moral level, so then that may be an important background for what we're about to read about. So in that sense, let's skip many psukim because there's uh, a lot to say here. So just to get a little further, so we know that there is a whole interaction here with Shimon and Levi, that they approach the people of Shrem and they tell them that, yes, we'll intermarry with you, but we just insist on a brismillah, and then when they're recovering on the third day, so they're most vulnerable, so then Shimon and Levi go in and they kill everybody. So this is, of course, a very major and controversial event, and there's a lot to try to understand about what was the justification for this, and was there a justification for this? So this is incredibly relevant to contemporary issues of warfare that we are involved in right now without saying anything La because there's a lot to argue about and a lot to debate about, but just to have some awareness of the parameters of the debate so among the questions, so the Rambam and the Ramban have a major machlokas here with tremendous implications that the Rambam and Hilchusmalachim and Parak Tashi Yudalid, so the Rambam discusses this episode in Mishnah Torah, and he understands there that essentially they were justified, Jemana Levi, because of the rules of sheva Mitzvah Ben Anoch, that the Noahide code requires the of mitzvah for everything, at least theoretically. And that was true of Shechem himself. And here is where he applies what I mentioned before. He applies that Shechem was in violation of Gezel that he committed Gazel against Dina by taking her against her will. So that Avera is included in Gazel, that Zechi of in that particular formulation. But what about everybody else? So everybody else, they were liable also because the mitzvah of Din is also part of the Sheva of Mitzvah Noach. And the Rambam understands that the mitzvah of Din requires civil society, to enforce the other six. You have six prohibitions, and one mitzvah sase. and the city of Shechem, they were negligent in this mitzvah of Din, the mitzvah sase of Bnei Noach, and therefore they were also all Chayiv Misa. If that's the rule, you're violating the mitzvah of Noach and Chayiv Misa, so they violated it too, and therefore there were also Chayiv Misa. So it's a somewhat extreme position in the Rambam. And the Ramban takes great issue with this. And the Ramban over here in his commentary to Chumash, in Vayishlach, the Ramban has a lot of objections. Uh, one of the major objections, which is relevant to the whole debate how to understand this, is that the implication of the Rambam is that essentially what Shemin and Levi did was right. And the implication from the text is that it's not right. We uh, see that Yaakov is highly critical of them. And continues to be critical later, it comes up again in Parshat Vayichi, so there is a major theme here that they were wrong, and that even if you're going to argue that maybe they were right, but Yaakov was scared, so then he shouldn't criticize them. Question about that? But yeah. Didn't we say earlier that you can make the right decision, but still have ramifications based on... Yes, So, but, there, how, but how far do we go with that? Because wait, if he's just saying, oh, Nebuchadnezzar had to happen then that would fit into what we are saying before. So if we saw that he expressed sadness that this was the result, but he didn't criticize them for doing it in the sense of you shouldn't have done this, so then that would have fit in. But he's clearly taking them to task for having done it and talking in terms that made that they made the wrong decision and also coming back and implying that later again in the So it sounds like a much stronger sense of that, even though there may be some element to this. So that's it's part of what makes this whole so the section of the parsha is so difficult because it's hard to know the absolute takeaway so I want to emphasize certainly as far as the current in that are very parallel but at the same time it's a very theoretical discussion because to know exactly what to take away here can be very complex but the Ramban understands that first of all they seem to be wrong from the context of the Way it was treated, and he also disagrees in terms of the interpretation and the Rambam's position. So, first of all, for the Rambam to say that you be chayiv misa under the code of Meneh Noach for failing to carry out the positive mitzvah of din, he thought that wasn't true either. He so says the general rule is chayiv misa for all violation of the Noahide code. So, essentially, he's paralleling this to Jewish halacha when it comes to Jewish halacha. So, we know that for the most part. Roughly speaking, onshin are usually correlated only with los assays, and mitzvahs usually don't have. So it's a similar idea also to say that there's a, a chiyav misa across the board. That's for a violation of an avera of the mitzvahs b'nei noach, the six uh, the six los assays. But to fail to do a mitzvahs that wouldn't necessarily carry with it a chiyav misa. And he also understands the whole mitzvah din differently, and that's a tremendous chodesh she has there also, which is worthy of its own long, long discussion, but just to be aware of it. The Ramban over there says that, in his understanding, the mitzvah of din actually means that all the choshe mishpat applies to the whole world. So all of the all of bavakamim, Baba, Baba Basra, and all of, all the dinim that we have of mammonas, he writes there, shomrim, sechiris, all these rules that apply in all of those masechetas apply to all of civil society, which is a tremendous khirish. I remember going to a share many years ago by Rav Shmuel where he was talking about this Ramban. And uh, he said that you might think, well, I understand that because Choshe Mishpat is generally intuitive anyway, so you could expect people from all over society to figure it out, so it's understandable that it should apply also. He said that's not what you should think. He said, there are more Kavachomers and Gezer Shavas and Bav than the are in the point being that just to assume that everything is so intuitive in, in the Bhavas or in the Zikan and therefore you could understand why it should be universal. No, it's a much bigger kiddish than that. The Rama has a chuva where he discusses how the Tut and. Are perhaps traceable to the language of apostolic and Barishas and the way the Gemara understands it, but it is a major machloket whether the rules of Chosha Mishpat overall apply to all of society based on their own ban over here. So there are other discussions also about what exactly was the nature of the justification, if there was one, and highly significant to today's overall environment is the position of the Gura'ryeh over here, where the Gura'ryeh understands that there is a war principle that is being triggered here, and that the reason Shimon and Levi were justified in attacking the whole city of Shechem is because they perceived this as an act of warfare and as a national entity against a national entity. This essentially was the Shechem people against the Yaakov people, and therefore to take a step back against the entire population was legitimate under the laws of war. So he needs a little bit more explanation to what he's saying, uh, presumably, I think, as others feel, and also that what he's getting at is that this act of attack against Dina, knowing the whole situation, is such a blatant provocation, and especially now it resonates so strongly knowing that what happened to Dina was such a part of what happened on Simpsons Torah. But the latency of it and the aggressiveness of that also was particularly scary to Shimon Alevi, saying this is a real act of warfare, it's a real threat from one society to the next, and therefore to respond in such a way was, in their eyes, appropriate. The Orichayim comments that you have to also wonder, according to the position of the Rambam, that even if you say that there is an obligation on the whole society, but maybe they were anusim here, they couldn't really put Shem on trial because Shem was uh, their dictator. Shem was had them all under his thumb. So how exactly would they be in a position to judge him, practically speaking? So maybe you shouldn't hold them responsible for that. So Nassim Gishtetner had a safer on Chumash. There's a whole discussion about that. And he suggests that if this had been the first time they ever had to do anything, so then you could perhaps make that excuse. But because they were complicit in his averis in general, so now the fact that they may not have been in a position to try him didn't get them off the hook, which also goes a little bit to that point I said before about this is presumably more of a moral responsibility rather than seeing that as a technical responsibility. So if we see this beyond the basic framework of legality and war of an act of war, so then the question of those kinds of more general liabilities and more general responsibility become more relevant. Uh, it could be that there were other issues here as well, And if we see here generally a machlokus between Yaakov and Shimon and Levi, as far as how to carry out acts such as this, when to carry out acts such as this, so if we see that to be a machlokus, the one perspective which, if you look in reverse, you look in others, so they also discuss how the two angles are. And there's a long discussion about this in the same safer I mentioned a few minutes ago, Sefer Urvi Ishii, has a long essay about this, about trying to understand the implications here for warfare. And the safer was written a few years ago, but not that many years ago, and he actually specifically discusses terrorists in Gaza who hide among civilians and what exactly are the implications in terms of that. And the fact that others may become involved, so he has a whole analysis, and without going into all of it, but I believe also what emerges, and that's possibly very relevant here, is that you know one question to consider. It's uh, important to appreciate that the contemporary Israeli army not only doesn't target civilians, but and that has a much greater sensitivity than Western armies in general. But that historically, Western armies actually did target civilians, feeling that that was relevant to their war goals. So, the question of what happened in World War II and in Dresden and in Tokyo. So, not only was there a much higher civilian death count, but that was also so there's a little bit of machlokes between America and England at the time. There's a lot of history behind there, but that was actually part of the shita. That part of the shita was to go after civilians because the goal was to demoralize the population and that would ultimately have a effect on the war. And it's a tricky point because theoretically that is something that could be justified as far as bringing a quicker end to a war. It's partially what was involved also in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So the question of can it be ever relevant to target civilians for the purpose of ending a war and therefore ultimately bringing about less death and victory for one side or the other. So that is not the Shittah, the Hazat. So the assumption of the world and of Israel today is that that's not legitimate, even though that may contribute to a war goal. So it could be that that was the machlokes Shemana Levi and Yaakov, and that they agree that you can take action against a entity, a collective entity in the context of war, but how far can you go with that? So perhaps Shimon Levy felt that, listen, we're at risk from this whole population because look at what's going on here. So we have to make a very decisive strike, which is going to include innocent people, but it's going to have the effect of keeping us safe from this population that otherwise could threaten us. And perhaps Yaakov's sheet was that even though that argument has some theoretical validity to it, but that's not within the bounds of morality, and you don't have the right to go after people who are not the actual aggressors just because that will ultimately have a effect of protecting you from that society and that you have to keep your vengeance focused on those who are the actual perpetrators. So perhaps there was that shita, which we see as a machlokis within Western democracies less than 100 years ago. Maybe this was the Machlokis, Yaakov and Shimon and Levi. And again, it seems that text seems to indicate that Yaakov ultimately disapproved with their behavior. It's also a fair question, which is a little bit relevant to what the panel asked before, that is there a distinction here between might be, what might be theoretically legitimate and what may also bring about all kinds of other negative consequences, which also then play their own role. So it's hard to know 100% whether Yaakov's criticism was perhaps occupying that space which is also a part of the calculations today and this is what some have been uh, addressing explicitly that israel is put in a position where they have to operate not only within the actual laws of war but also what's perceived as the special humras that apply only to them so that doesn't make sense logically but may nonetheless have implications for international geopolitics and that may also be a part of it that there's one thing that may be theoretically justifiable but they have other implications that are going to be very negative and perhaps that therefore also becomes wrong and maybe that's what Yakov was saying so again there's a lot to try to understand about the nature of this whole story so it's hard to be darish any conclusions but just to be aware of the parameters of debate here and as far as how they may have broader implications So this is a lot of what's connected here. Rav Yaakov Kametsky has a whole discussion as well, also about the fact that Yaakov doesn't say anything at the beginning, but he probably suspects that something is up when he hears about this bris and how exactly to understand that. And he suggests that there's two levels people live on. There's the we call it the machshava rishona that somebody wants to ideally live life completely, consistently, and in accordance with their values. But then sometimes they also find that they're living in a situation which forces a compromise because of who you deal. Dealing with. So Yaakov realized that that was essentially the situation here, so he wasn't going to deal with it himself because the Chalashem, he was going to let Shem and Levi deal with it. That would be more appropriate, but he never thought it was going to go that far. He thought they were just trying to weaken them in order to get back Nina. Didn't think that they would end up killing everyone. And then when they say to them, Ha uh, that, uh, so what are we going to do? Are we going to let our sister be treated like a zona? So that is a very striking comment. And he doesn't seem to respond here, but he responds later in Yakov when he says, God say Israel, I'm going to spread them around, I'm going to split them up, which sounds like that's a punishment. But then Rashi over there says that they're going to be the Sofram and the Torah teachers. So how do you relate to that? so here it's kind of the inverse we said before that it could be something could be right and you could still feel bad about it here there's the other half of it something could be wrong but still show some desirable mida so the fact that what they did it could have been that it was ultimately wrong but still showed a certain empathy for the suffering of the sister that was important and that it had to be brought out. And so the idea that they will be the teachers of Chal Yisrael later, so that reflects the fact that they have that ability to understand what people are going through and to sympathize and to connect emotionally. So even though it ended up playing out very negatively here, but that Mida still has something very positive to it, and the ability to be most ineffish for Chal Yisrael, and that's also something to appreciate. Uh, this response, HaKizona, where well, we should be treated like a Zona, So I, think I heard once, may have been from uh, David Lichtenstein on his uh, Headlines podcast, that you know, when they say, shall we let her be like a Zona, but whatever happened already happened. So what is what are they saying when they say, we can't let her be like a Zona? So apparently, it's a very important point, that when somebody is treated that way, so the way other people react or don't react has a big effect on what happens. So for somebody to be treated that way and the people around her don't care and don't do anything and don't respond, so then that means she's being treated like a zona. But if at least there is a response and the people around care and they do something, it doesn't mean as violent as what Shimon levy did but that there should be some kind of a protection of a person who goes through this kind of assault and there should be a response and there should be a sense of caring about the situation so that's perhaps what they were reflecting here and uh, we see that whether or not what they did in this moment could be justified, but that midah of caring so much is something that has a very crucial element to it and should express itself in appropriate ways, and that that's why they end up having their descendants be the teachers of Qal Yisrael. Uh, we also see here that they end up taking up all the property of the city, so the Archaim discusses that that's because of knas. So this averbe brings with also a monetary penalty. Also, so what about the rule of Kim Le'ad the Isn't there a rule that if somebody is Chayiv Misa, so then they're exempt from monetary consequences? So he says that it doesn't apply, but he didn't Bnei Noach. So it's true that's actually a machlokas, Rashi and Tosus and Erevin and Daf whether it's Kim Le'ad by Bnei Noach, and that's actually connected to what we said a few minutes ago from the Ramban that the Ramban, if he's right in applying all of the pratim of Choshe and to non-Jews also, so then maybe didn't like Kim Lerabne come along as well, and that's itself a uh, Chiddish. So we'll just close by noting that uh, here at the end of the Aliyah, so we find another reference to the idea that Yaakov's name will be changed and it won't uh, be Israel, it won't be Yaakov anymore, it'll be Israel. but we find that's not really the case because Yaakov does still come up, in distinction to Avram, in the end of the first paragraph of Brachos, the says that when Avram was changed to Avraham, so there's an Isser to refer to him as Avram anymore, it's absolute. But in Akov's case, it's not true. And that even though the language is, you won't be called Yaakov anymore, but he is called Yaakov together with Yisrael. So the idea that those names coexist is a notion that uh, many of the Mepharshim have. There's a sikh about this. in The sikh uh, of Eliezer, Eliezer who was a uh, member of my extended family, who was a very of the Tanachachim, who died tragically. And uh, he noted, as others allude to this idea as well, that Yaakov is a language of Shiflis, the language that talks about the heel. In fact, it was holding on to the heel of Asaph, and Yisrael is a very grand name, uh, the name of Malchus. And Yaakov is being given this name, but not exclusively because he has to keep in balance this. Regalness with the attitude of humility, which he does, and he says that's the Yusod in life in general. That somebody who is of a level of malchus still has to maintain a connection to people and know how to relate to people, and that that's a crucial idea, and also that this notion of kisarisa that you're fighting uh, it's not over. And you have to keep fighting, and you have to keep taking on these battles. And indeed, that's where we know where Qal Yisrael is. And Qal Yisrael is continuing to try to define the approach to continue to do these battles within the parameters of what a Qadr wants from us. And uh, we see so much of this partial is giving us different values that we balance together, and that theme, essentially, of Vayira Yaakov, one at the beginning of the Pasha, that we have the need to first protect all the Klai's all, to protect Yaakov and his descendants, and make sure that nothing should happen to them, and uh, sometimes it's a situation where there needs to be a passion to reflect what kind of avalas have happened against the children of Yaakov, and steps have to be taken to prevent that from ever happening again. And how to do that in the context of the morality of the Jewish people is an ongoing debate, and the midah that we... Hold on to is the effort to try to balance all of these cheshmonas to make sure that we do indeed make the right decisions and that we are worthy of the tradition of Yaakov of Israel And the effort to do so, and the ongoing kepeda and concern and sensitivity that this should indeed be. And carried out with the proper balance for all of the different considerations, itself is a source of chus, and as that uh, goes on, it should be an ongoing chus for Klal Yisrael, so that we should win all of our and that there should be continuing Yeshuas and nisim for Klal Yisrael. So, uh, right there,